Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. Um, let's see. Our concern this morning, as you kind of seen in the passage there, is to become a mature church community. That is a spiritual community or a spiritual people and not a fleshly or natural people. And this scheme, right, as we've saw from immaturity to maturity or from what is natural to what is spiritual comes from the Apostle Paul's writings to the Corinthians. And the Corinthian church was obviously an immature sort of fleshly people. And the expression of that was division. It was a community, if you could even call it that, that was defined by factions or cliques, right, that were warring against one another. So you had some saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, um, I'm of Cephas, or even some, I am of Christ. And so toward the end of his initial argument, he, it really begins in the first chapter and it extends all the way through chapter 4. But toward the end of that argument, in the text that we read, the apostle says to them, 1 Corinthians 3.1, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh. So again, at bottom, their problem was their lack of spiritual maturity. Rather than growing into a genuinely spiritual community, they were still snared by the flesh and its ways. Again, he continues, look at verse 3. He says, since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Right? This is the way things are done in the world. You're still in the flesh because there's jealousy and strife. So that's the scheme this morning. Mere men, a natural community that is torn apart by jealousy and strife on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other, a spiritual community held together in unity, one defined by the Spirit. And of course, spiritual community is defined by the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, things against which there is no law. So this call is not simply to become spiritual people, that is, spiritual individuals, individuals, but spiritual community. That this maturity would manifest itself not just in our individual lives, but in our common life. And again, and again, those two things are inseparable. So I want to do that this morning by making three simple contrasts between natural community and spiritual community. And then along with those three contrasts, what I want to do is provide three accompanying uh, practices that will help us to grow from the natural to the spiritual. So the first point, and I'll give you all three, is that natural community is bound together through natural affinities, while spiritual community is bound together in Christ. The second is that natural community is built on ideals and preferences, while spiritual community is built on the reality of Christ's work. And the third is natural community is entered into for one's own sake, while spiritual community is entered into for Christ's sake. So those are the three, and then these are the three accompanying practices. Very simple. One, 
to speak to others, that is, one another here, about Christ. Two, that we give thanks for those in the community that Christ has given us. And then three, that we serve those whom Christ has given us. So that's the general rubric. But let's begin with the first of those. Our community is through Christ. So let me ask you a phrase. I know all you can finish it. Birds of a feather fly together, flock together. There's a few versions, but that's right. General idea is right. So it's an old proverb, um, and it means that people of a similar type, people of similar interests and similar personality tend to run together in the same circles. They flock together. And, of course, that's a self-evident fact. Consider um, your friend group, either now or in the past, right? Now, there may be some outliers, but generally, that friend group, the people are of the same age, they're typically of the same station of life, and they have the same interests as you, and your friendship is built around those things. Or imagine it's the first day of college, you're on university campus, and you don't know anyone. Or it's the first day of work, and you're getting new to this new, uh, you're getting introduced to this new environment. Who or what kind of people are you going to look for? Well, generally, you're going to find those that you can relate to. So if you're on the university campus, you look for a group where you share common interest, and you go meet with those people and get hooked up and find a place, right? Now, this kind of thing, birds of a feather flock together. It's comfortable, it's natural, and it's intuitive to us. And this tendency to seek out those who are similar to us is what we're calling natural community. So the tendency to seek out those who are similar to us is what we're calling natural community. In fact, this, uh, this sort of notion or concept, it has its own term in sociology. It's called homophily. So hamas meaning same or common, and philos meaning love. So homophily means love of the same. And so you put any group into... Uh, a room or put them together and very quickly they'll begin to sort themselves out by kinds, right? According to what they share in common. Lifestyle, personal interest, important viewpoints, and etc. So that's natural community. Now let's compare that with spiritual community. If natural community is based on natural affinity, meaning what people share in common, then spiritual community is based on the gospel, meaning that you and I, together as a church, are not bound together in community through the same interests. Like, we're not like a Jesus fan club, right? Um, We're not bound together by the same background or the same outlook, but we're bound together through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we might share some of those things in common, And in large part, we do. We line up on a lot of different things, but those things aren't the deciding factor, right? That's not the bottom line that holds us together. Rather, the bottom line is the gospel, Jesus and his death and resurrection. Now, the scriptures give us two sort of primary metaphors to describe this reality, that it's Jesus through whom we have community. The first is, um, I guess it's the botanical practice of grafting, or joining two plants together, right? So if uh, you're a gardener, you would break off the branch of 
uh, an existing branch off of one tree, right? And then you'd take that remaining stump, you'd cut it down the middle, and then you would take a branch or whatever, a stem from another tree, and you would insert it into the middle of that stump, and then you would wrap it around as tightly as you could, and over time, as that living tree began to grow, it will assimilate this other branch, and it will produce its own fruit. You can do all kinds of interesting things through that. And that's the metaphor that the Apostle Paul gives us in Romans 11 to describe the church community. He says that we as Gentiles are wild olive branches who are grafted onto the already existing massive and sprawling tree that is the Jewish people, the people of God. So we're grafted into that life. And of course, the trunk and the root system of this massive tree is Christ, the true vine in whom we abide, apart from whom we can do nothing. So when we think about this in relation to one another, we see that though formerly we belong to all kinds of different trees producing all kinds of different fruit, we were broken off, each one of us, and grafted into this new people, this new community. And therefore, we are members, our life belongs to one another. Our life that we have traces itself back to the same roots, and it's drawing from the same rich soil that is the life of God. So it's a wonderful metaphor. We're all branches grafted into this massive tree that is Christ and the people of God. Now the other metaphor, and this is obviously the most obvious one, is the human body. Christ is the head, we are the various members, and together we form one body. That is, Christ is composed of, or Christ's body, excuse me, that would be heresy, Christ's body is composed of various human members, each with their own unique role and function within the body. And some have more prominent role than others, but there is no, there are no rather useless members. And Paul spells out the implications for us. Romans chapter 12, verse 5, he says, We who are many are one body in Christ. And then he gets to the next part, and individually members of one another. Individually members of one another. So the common element in both of these metaphors that the scripture provides for us, is that our union with Christ puts us in union with one another. That is, if we're going to have him as individuals, as our head, and as our root system, the tree into which we're grafted, then that means we're going to have one another as fellow branches and fellow members. We are members of one another. And this union that we have with one another in Christ is what we're calling spiritual community. So natural community is built around shared interest or background or whatever. Spiritual community, there's one thing that holds us together. It's our union with Christ. That's the bottom line. Now, let's kind of talk about this and see how it works its way out in the church. Natural community in the church is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's perfectly normal, and it's inevitable, as we said. Right When people come together, they're going to separate themselves out by natural affinities. And some churches are organized along these lines, meaning the lines of natural community. Um, 
you know, you go to especially the larger churches, they have studies for moms, right, where moms can get together and talk about mom things. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. They have studies for men, right, where men can come together and maybe not talk but, like, cook or something or do men things. And then they have the studies for married people. They have studies for single people. They have studies for high schoolers, studies for college students. They have studies for those who like to study, right, and on and on. At my past church, we used to have a joke that we even had a study for the underwater basket weavers because we were providing studies for every little type of group. And the goal was to provide them an opportunity to meet people just like themselves, right? Even the underwater basket weavers, they won't be left out. Now, again, this type of community is not necessarily bad. However, it is something that we're called to mature beyond, In the body of Christ, we're called to mature beyond this kind of community. And I want to give you three reasons why. The first is that natural community is inherently exclusionary. We have a name for groups that are bound together by natural affinity. They're called cliques. And sometimes, ironically and sadly, the church can look like a high school cafeteria, where the lines upon which people divide themselves are so painfully clear. And what happens is with these cliques is they have the tendency to harden into impenetrable factions where they become separated and cordoned off from the rest of the church community. Again, this was the problem in Corinth. Chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not acting like mere men? Right? This is the way the world does things. This is how the world operates where we have our group, and we do our thing, and everyone else is kind of outside that. And you can come in, but you got to sort of agree. And of course, these cliques of natural community, they can end up dividing the church. And I, I mean, I, I'm sure we've all had some sort of experience with that, where these cliques can divide the church. And so what happens, though, is that they make, or, or rather, that some people don't fit in to those cliques, and then they fall between the cracks where they're just excluded because they don't maybe just fit in, right? We know those poor people sitting alone at the lunch table, either at high school or in, you know, the sub at UNM, and they're present in the church too, right? When there's cliques, people fall between the cracks, and they're often the most vulnerable who pay for that kind of thing. The second thing is that natural community is just simply a weak foundation to build the church on. Because when the going gets tough, the church community needs more than shared interests to keep it together. It's the same reason why friend groups change, simply because people change and interests change. And a church that's built on gathering people around some sort of shared interest inevitably has to bounce from thing to thing, from issue to issue, seeking some new foundation to hold people together. So we're a, we're a family church, or we're, you know, the hip church, or we're the socially relevant church, and it's this sort of modifier that keeps people together. And then the last thing is that natural community, for all of its strengths, is not distinctly Christian. For instance, when we get together for the underwater basket weaver study, who's, who, anyone going to join me? Um, what are we there for? We're there for underwater basket weaving. Our community is ultimately held together by something other than the gospel. 
when we organize by ourselves by natural affinity, that's the sort of glue that keeps us together, and then we add the gospel on top of that. So it's really about this thing, but we're just doing it as Christians. Now, Christ knows our weaknesses. He knows that we're natural men and women seeking out natural community, but, as I said, he expects us to mature beyond it. In a genuinely mature and spiritual community, the bonds of natural community gradually fade into the background. Like those issues of shared interest, they sort of just eventually begin to disappear. We might need them initially, like I'm getting to know you, and I'll ask about your background, and so on and so forth. That's very normal. But as that relationship grows, what happens is that those things just sort of fall off, and what emerges, what comes to the fore, is Jesus Christ. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his classic Life Together, he says, he puts it this way, I have community with others and will continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us will recede. And the more purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing alive between us. I love that so much. Jesus Christ and his work will become the one and only thing alive between us. That's a great definition of what spiritual community is. We're held together through Jesus Christ. And as we're held together through Jesus Christ, he's what emerges in our relationships. Now, that's the call to move from the natural to the spiritual. So how can we realize that? Let me give you something painfully obvious. It's simply by speaking to one another about Christ. Speaking to one another about Christ. Community through Christ is essentially community about Christ. Again, I know that sounds mundane, but our community is expressed through our conversation. Right? If you happened upon a group and they were discussing the intricacies of, I don't know, their uh, quantum physics, you're not going to think that they're there for a gardening club, would you? Right? They're, what's their community, the thing that holds them together is what they're talking about. And so you're able to identify them. And so Paul says to the church community, Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul envisions that when the church comes together, it would be running over, just spilling over with the words of Christ. That is, brothers and sisters, teaching one another, correcting one another, even singing the words of life to one another. Again, certainly, I'm not, what I'm not trying to say is that there are, um, it's, you know, we should be so spiritual we don't talk about any of those things. That's not what I'm saying. Rather that all our conversations should ultimately lead us to Christ. We should always want to find our way back to him because that's what our community is in. And so the goal of spiritual community is to make that one thing, Jesus, who is alive between us, shine forth. So think of your brothers and sisters and think what you're trying to do for them is to commend Christ to them in your speech. You're trying to give them Christ. You're trying to build them up in Christ. You're trying to give them his words. So let me issue that just 
bit of encouragement and challenge. Draw your brothers and sisters to Christ. Point them to the Lord. So that's the first part. That's uh, community through Christ. Let's talk a little bit about community in Christ now. One of the most dangerous things in any relationship are expectations or ideals. Um, it's a pretty common feature of premarital counseling to deflate the young couple's dreams of their life together um, as it's now on the horizon. Now, that's not because it's going to be all toil and tears, but that marriage will be unnecessarily hard if you go into it with rose-tinted glasses. Ben Franklin, um, the founding father, he gave the sound advice. He said to keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterward. Be, be very sober about what you're getting into and then after, um, shut your eyes. <laughs> um, so again, I don't ever want to spoil the idealism and romance <laughs> of, of love um, but I do consider it my duty to sober up any starry-eyed couples that come to me. I just tell them, listen, you'll thank me later. Um, now, natural community is organized around ideals and preferences, right? Natural community is organized around ideals and preferences. That is, one enters into natural community, be it a friendship or a marriage or the church, expecting to have their sort of ideal vision realized. So in the case of the church, right, someone comes in with natural community and they think the people at church are all going to be so welcoming and friendly. That's what it says to itself. It says, you know, they're going to be just like me and we're going to just kick it off and be great friends. You know, these people are going to affirm my lifestyle choices. They're going to help me get a job and they're going to help me find a spouse. You know, he or she's probably already waiting for me there. Because the natural community is built on shared interests and background, right? You're coming into it because ultimately what you desire, it's then necessarily organized around expectations. I expect to have my shared interests, my desires fulfilled. So natural community, is, it's just simply idealistic or uh, a, a romanticized vision of community. By contrast, spiritual community is sober, because it's not organized around expectations or ideals, but it's organized around reality. It's not organized around some dream community floating around in our heads, but the real community that Christ has given us. It's not a community that we make. It's a community that's received. Now, this takes us back to something I mentioned in an earlier sermon, that we don't get to choose our family. Right? We're born into a house of strangers. And so are we with our church community. Christ is the architect. And the community takes shape, not, a, takes shape, not according to our will, our preferences and ideals and expectations, but his. He determines who our brothers and sisters are. He determines the people that are going to be in our church community. And we don't have a say in the matter. Thus, what Christ calls us to do is to lay aside our expectations and to receive the community that he's given us with thankfulness. Now, is it wrong to have expectations for our church family? Of course not. It's a good thing to expect something from our brothers and sisters. 
And it's a good thing to expect something from ourselves more importantly. That is, you know, that we would expect, right, that the church community would be welcoming or that they would be friendly, that they would be helpful, so on and so forth. And those expectations are good because they keep us from becoming lazy or careless. It's good that a wife has expectations of her husband to a certain degree. Same thing, husband to his wife. It's good for friends to have expectations of one another. And it's good for us to have expectations in the church. However, and here's the point, whatever those expectations are, they need to be held lightly. Because the danger, and this happens so much, and I want to get a little personal with you in just a moment, the danger is that we come to love our idealistic dream community more than the actual community that Christ has given us. I said I was going to get personal, and I had to learn this lesson the hard way. Prior to arriving here at CBC, I went out to Santa Fe, that's where I was before this, um, to go plant a church. And I wound up in Santa Fe because I had a dream community in my mind. I would close my eyes and picture my perfect church out there in Santa Fe. In fact, it was, well, what I had in my mind was that I wanted to go to a place that was like just, you know, secular to the bone and, you know, educated, liberal, and I just had this romantic idea of planting the gospel in this hard soil. So it was either Santa Fe or San Francisco. I mean, I think, I thank God I'm not in San Francisco right now. Yeah, you guys would have to pick me up on the streets. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I had this vision, right? And when I look at that vision now, the people I imagined in my church were people like me. People that I could relate to, people that, you know, which could just kick it off easy, all this other stuff. I had it all worked out. I had the sanctuary design, I had the, the type of music, I had the right aesthetic, all of it was there. And then what happens? Well, God mercifully crushed my ideal community. We made zero converts, we didn't have one service, and we came home thoroughly embarrassed. Thoroughly embarrassed. And then almost out of the blue, I wound up here. And again, I don't mean to be offensive, but honest. <laughs> it was the furthest thing from what I wanted. I remember the first time I met with Tom, and he sort of gave me the proposition. It was Aaron and I. We left his house. I didn't know where CBC was, so we drove up, and we pulled into the parking lot, and I saw the building rimmed with barbed wire. And I thought, I don't know what I'm getting into, and we just sat there in silence. So so intimidated. And not long after that, I was at service, and I was looking around, and, you know, except for a few exceptions, it was like it was, I was the uh, young 20-year-ish person. And I had hoped, I had my friends, and I hoped, hey, they're going to come be a part of CBC, and then they bailed for another church here in town. And it was a very hard time. Because what I wanted was my vision, right? My natural community. But the Lord wasn't giving me that. Rather, he was disabusing me of my dream community. And what he was teaching me, I look back now, is not to love my ideals, but reality. To love the community, not that I imagine for myself, but that he has given me. And it took time. But I learned the difference between natural community that's organized around preferences, around expectations, and 
spiritual community organized around Christ and his will for the church. And that experience, right, of sort of going through that hard transition is not unique to me. I think it happens to everyone in church, though not in the same way. When our expectations are dashed upon the rocks of reality, we can do one of two things. Either we can become bitter and discontented and check out. This is not what I imagined. This is not the life I envisioned for myself. These aren't the people I wanted to be around. Or we can learn to grow in maturity and love the community that Christ has given us. However, I just want to make a few caveats before I continue. That's not to say this is a fixed rule and that no one can change church communities. There are good reasons to leave a church. Sometimes a situation, situation cannot be fixed, and it's better to part ways in peace. Uh, sometimes a person is not spiritually mature enough to give up their expectations, their natural community, and it's better for them to go somewhere where they can be in the long run. And sometimes, listen, God just calls people elsewhere. So I'm not saying that no one can ever leave for no reason. That's not what it's at. Rather, my point is, more often than not, the danger is not that we stay longer than we should, but that we leave prematurely. The danger is not that we sort of stick it out with the community and learn to grow into maturity. The danger is that we just we leave when God's wanting to do something more. And so that's the call to maturity, from loving our dream community to loving the real community. And now let's sort of wrap this point up with the question of how can we realize this? And the answer, I think the only answer is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving begins with the recognition that the church community does not exist for our preferences, but for the pleasure of Christ. And he constructs the community according to his own wisdom and goodness. And if we're to hang in there, we have to take our expectations and submit them to the will of Christ. And what this does is it keeps us from idolizing the church community. That is, it keeps us from seeking in our brothers and sisters something, contentment, happiness, or whatever, that only Christ can give. It frees us from crushing other people with the weight of our expectations. And Thanksgiving gives us back, gives them back to us, rather, not for who we want them to be, but for who they are in Christ. Thanksgiving helps us to mature along this road. So again, this is, this, practically this is Thanksgiving. It's an expression of trust in Christ's will. That though he doesn't necessarily give us what we want, he gives us what we need, and that's far better. So instead of looking upon our brothers and sisters and seeing our dashed expectations, and this is something, again, that I like, really struggled with. I'd come to church and I would think, like, man, I want to see someone that's like you know, my age. And I would be disappointed. I would be hurt. But then you learn to give thanks, and it changes the picture. Things look differently. We don't complain over what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us daily. And when we give thanks, and, and particularly for those whom we have the most trouble with, in time, as I said, we begin to see things in a new light. I see my brother and sister not as a disappointment on my expectations, but someone that Christ has given me. Someone that he wills for me to be in community 
with. And I don't judge them now according to my expectations and preferences, but I accept them with gratitude as someone whom Christ has accepted into his community. And you see how that, those, those are radically different things, natural community and spiritual community, shared interests and Christ. And when this spiritual community can be manifest, it's a totally different, beautiful thing. And I will say, I think we at CBC have a really cool opportunity to do that. Because I, there's nothing sort of like, there's no, we're not like a hip church, we're not whatever, that people come for some other reason than Christ. Like, it's, if you're part of this community, it's because of Christ. And we have an awesome opportunity to move further along that road toward spiritual community. And then lastly, let me wrap up very quickly with community for Christ. So I hosted a Christmas party once, and no one came. And I was so hurt and I was mad. I had prepared gifts, right? I, like, designed them. I, like, went to the nth degree, and then nobody came. And so rather than saving the gifts and giving them to them later, I spitefully gave them away or even threw them in the trash. Um, don't offend me. This is what you're going to get. Um, but I've never hosted a Christmas party since. And you ask why? Well, it's because when I hosted that party, I expected reciprocity. That is, kindness for kindness. You've heard quid pro quo, something for something. There's a Latin phrase, do u das, I give that you may give. Or we simply say, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. At the heart of human relationships is this notion of reciprocity. You give, I give. Now, in natural community, it's reciprocal in nature. One enters into the community and gives their love to others to receive love. That is, when I invite you to my Christmas party, I expect you to come. <laughs> and moreover, I expect you to invite me to yours. Now, there's nothing wrong, again, with this something-for-something something love. In many ways, it's the foundation of a good society because if people cannot get out what they put in, things are not going to get very far. And a lot of discontentment is because of that. However, this type of love is fundamentally self-regarding, meaning that it loves for its own sake, that all of its actions are for itself in the end. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, as I've said, but you know where I'm going. Christ expects us to mature beyond this. He commands us in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies, and this is his explanation, Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. If you love those who love you, that's the reciprocity, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Jesus is saying, look, this is a very ordinary love. If you love those who love you, where, where's the reward? Where is there anything extraordinary, right? So the church, by implication, is called to a genuine spiritual love. That is love that's beyond the something-for-something calculation. Spiritual love doesn't have itself as the end of all its actions but Christ. It loves the church community, its brothers and sisters, not for them, or not even for itself. It loves them for Christ in obedience to his command. Now, let me, in order to love this way, we must realize that there are no one-to-one -one relationships in the church. Rather, Christ stands between us. So I don't have a relationship with you directly. Christ interferes between us. And his interference means that 
I'm not to love you to receive your love in return. It means that I'm supposed to love you for the sake of Christ. And when, if I learn to love you to receive your love in return, that's my reward. Again, as Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what's your reward? You have it in the love of the other person. However, if I love you for the sake of Christ, regardless if you love me back or not, the reward comes from him. Now, it's still reciprocal. It's still something for something, but in a different way. It's not you who rewards my love, but it's Christ. And what that enables me to do is to love more freely. For example, you can tell I'm still hurt about this. If you don't come to my Christmas party, (laughs) I don't have to explode in anger or exclude you from my life, right? I don't have to do that. Now, I might be disappointed and I might be upset, but I'm still able to love you and to serve you. Why? Well, because I didn't love you in the first place so that you could love me back, right? That wasn't my goal. My goal, my point was I loved you because Christ commands me to love you for his sake. And when you love for Christ's sake, you can continue to love despite failure, despite unrequited love. This sort of love is the love that the Apostle Paul says never fails because it loves for the sake of the one who never fails us. And this expression of spiritual love in the church community is is one thing. It's service. That we serve one another not to receive something back, but freely in the name of Christ. It's the same way that he served us and gave up his life for ransom for us. So I want to invite you guys forward to come receive the elements of communion, uh, to take them back, to commune with the Lord, to respond to him, and then I'll lead us in just one moment.